Hello, and welcome to the Collider Podcast. I'm Collider Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Managing Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today, we'll be talking about late-stage capitalism in the form of the films Nomadland <laughs> and I Care A Lot. Just Yay. really uplifting episode uh, showing the victims and the perpetrators of late-stage capitalism. <laughs> so really just buckle in, have a good time. Um, but no, I think both of these films, you know, they're, they're exploring similar ground in very different ways. Um, and we'll start off talking about Nomadland, and then we'll, in the second half of the show, we'll get into I Care A Lot, uh, and that will go into spoilers a bit. So if you haven't seen that film yet, it's on Netflix, uh, and a lot of people appear to be watching it. So let's kick things off with Nomadland, which uh, is a, was my favorite film of last year, and it's currently in theaters, but also on Hulu. So if you have Hulu, I, I strongly recommend it. Um, it's based on a book of the same name, but... Frances McNorman plays a woman who whose basically town disappeared because the town was based around an industry that died following the events of the Great Recession. And so she is she decides to go out and live out of a van. So as she says, she's not homeless, she's houseless, but she's also homeless in the sense that her home, the, the town that she was from, no longer exists. Um, and it's a kind of elegiac film you know i i think there's a lot of backlash coming towards nomadland and we'll discuss that in a bit but i feel like it's a film that that does know how to reckon with the idea that we're on the other side of this great calamity and just because that there is a catastrophic capitalistic impact that doesn't necessarily mean that our value as people our worth as people is therefore uh, non-existent, you know, that, that we are only as good as the things that we own or how much we can amass. Uh, and that basically we played by those rules and those rules screwed us over. And now the question is, is what, where do we go from here? And I think that that's a really interesting perspective for the film to take. Yeah, it's uh, also just super devastating. <laughs> like, it just really made me so sad, uh, especially the first 20 minutes or so, because, you know, it's this woman living a solitary, a largely solitary life. Um, and the nomads are a real thing. Like, it, you know, it's based on a real movement. And these people kind of meet up every now and then um, at specific locations. And there's definitely a sense of community there. Um, but there is a recurring theme throughout the film, which is that the characters... And I should note that Chloe Zhao uses both professional and non-professional actors. So some of the people in the film are actual nomads. Um, but almost every single character has some aspect of trauma or, um, you know, emotional uh, issues from the past that they're still trying to work through and trying to deal with, um, which makes it really devastating. And that's not to say that, you know, I think everyone in every uh, class has their own... Um, problems and, and things that they deal with, but there is kind of a common thread of like, these are the people that, you know, the country kind of leaves behind and leaves out to hang and uh, out to dry. Um, and it just makes it all the more devastating, but it also, you know, it's ultimately a hopeful film because it, it you know, these people find a sense of purpose on the road. They, these people find a sense of um, beauty and peace kind of living on the land and living, uh, you know, at one with uh, nature. And I think, Chloe Zhao and her cinematographer, Joshua James Richards, do an incredible job of capturing the landscape of America. Um, I think, it, you know, it's throughout like New Mexico, Arizona, Oklahoma, Texas, kind of the, the Southwest a little bit. Um, 
and it, there's just this really haunting beauty to the natural world that uh, we kind of forget exists, you know, when we all live in, in big cities and stuff. Um, but yeah, I don't know. The, there, it's a very melancholic film. It, it's not a, a film that is um, extremely dour and just like, ooh, look at these poor people. They have such terrible lives. But it's also not a film that's like, ooh, look, they gave everything away and now they're perfectly happy and fine. Right. Yeah. That's the thing. Like you're still going to like, I mean, they still need to make a living. So sometimes you work shit jobs, you know, just to, to get, to pay your way to the next destination. I think what's fascinating about it. And I think, you know, what the film requires of its viewers is to kind of hold two conflicting ideas in your head, because normally sort of a narrative structure kind of that we expect is reactive. So um, Fern, the main character played by Francis McDormand, loses her home, loses her house because the system is bad. And th- what we expect from narratives are to be like, well, so she's going to react to that and be like, I'm going to take down the system or show the system what's what or 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 some sort of redemptive sort of re- reclamation to reclaim the status quo. And what Nomadland does is firmly in the opposite of that. It doesn't, it's not about like, and here's how you solve the great recession. Here's how you solve capitalism. It accepts it as sort of an intractable fact of life. And I think that is very sad. And the fact that, you know, people who live on the margins have been marginalized. Um, But again, the film is saying that just because they live on the margin, that doesn't mean that their lives have value. The fact of the matter is that because the game is rigged, you need to stop playing by the rules of what that game dictates is success. So if the, if the game tells you success is, is having a house and a community that is fixed in one place, and then the game then takes that stuff away from you, was that game really worth playing? And I think, Nomad Land challenges that orthodoxy in a way that is very humanistic, um, but without really pulling any punches. Um, and I think that that's what gives it its strength. It's like the anti '80s, you know, feel-good romantic comedy, because <laughs> all those '80s films were just like, oh, look at all man. these things. Materialism of the '80s. I yeah. mean, let let let's let us not forget that like risky business is like this enterprising young man starts a brothel in his house. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Listen, and I grew up in it. Like I grew up like pogs were, you know, a form of currency to share with your friends, (laughs) you know, your little pogs, your little, you know, the things mattered. Nintendo systems and and stuff. No, I mean, and we, and we live and look, I'm not going to be like a hypocrite and saying like, I don't like things. I love things. I collect (laughs) stuff. I I love things. Um, But I also think it's, it's, it's good to reckon with the fact that if we let those things define us, like our identity can sort of be wiped out just as easily. And it's important. I think what Nomadland does a really good job of, you know, part of the phrase of selling uh, is that there's a natural beauty out there and not just in terms of the landscapes, although I think they're, they're gorgeously captured and I wanted, excuse me, so badly to just hop in my car and like start going to national parks after yeah. watching this movie. But the natural beauty of relations with well, just relationships. I mean, the world that Nomadland presents is one that is not scary. Um, I think, you know, we're attuned to the fact of like stranger danger and, you know, an enemy is just someone you haven't met yet. (laughs) You know, it's just, it's the idea that 
you know, every, every person you don't know could be out to get you or hurt you in some way. And, and Nomadland says, no, actually they're just mostly just people just living their lives and it doesn't hurt to just sit down and have a conversation with a person and not in a way of like, can we bridge the political divide, but just, you know, I, there was a really great scene in Nomadland where she, you know, Fern just sees this sort of young kid just kind of hanging out in the middle of nowhere and she just has a conversation with them. And it's not like this kid is pivotal to her story, but it's, it's a good scene. And it's those kind of scenes that I think string together and make it a rich film. Yeah. Connecting on a human level, which I think is something that, you know, we can all appreciate, especially. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, we talked when we ran down our favorite films of the year, there was a recurring theme in both yours and my list of, you know, these films, films about community and about human connection um, there's something that's lost when you're just text messaging or yelling at someone on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think, just yeah. doesn't solve anything. And I just having what... a mundane conversation. It, I mean, God, this pandemic has done the one thing I, I never thought it would do, which is make me kind of like long for the days of standing in line at Comic-Con and just talking to strangers about Seriously. things. Seriously, like you don't know what you have until it's gone. <laughs> yeah. And it, and it, I think that's sort of like the beauty of Nomadland is that it does sort of, um, sort of hammer home like what's really important and what, you know, in a, in a world where everything feels so temporary, where can we find permanence? You know, and that's sort of the, the interesting juxtaposition that the idea of Nomadland, of transient, you know, populations are finding something more stable than those of us who are staying put. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and, and now I kind of wanted to address because I, I mean, the film arrived on Hulu on Friday, and um, there were there have been some profiles on Chloe Zhao, and it's interesting to sort of see the backlash emerge against Nomadland. And I just I kind of want to address it because I feel like the arguments don't really hold water. I mean, yeah. you're free to dislike the film. I mean, you know, if you don't like it, that's fine. But one of the arguments that really kind of stuck in my craw was you know it romanticizes poverty. And I don't think it does at all. Like, I don't see Francis McDormand shitting in a bucket and being like, yes, that's the life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, I don't think that holds water at all because it's not, as I said, it's it's not showing their lives as like, ooh, I'm finally free, but it's also not showing their lives as look how miserable woe is me. There is some sense of peace and happiness that they find, but it doesn't come without sacrifice. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't come without hardships. I think one of the more striking sequences is, you know, uh, Fern and a lot of these people, they take uh, seasonal jobs at an Amazon distribution center. And, you know, that's top of the news at this point in time of how Amazon treats its workers. Uh, and I think we all forget, you know, when we get our next day shipping on some stupid thing that we think we need as quickly as possible, um, that was someone who was running across a distribution center, having to hit their quotas and get it in a box and get it to you as quickly as possible. And I think it's greatest strength is it humanizes people that I think society uh, as a whole is kind of cast aside as, you know, oh, these people are, you know, either beyond help or not worth helping. And, uh, you know, or this person who's flipping my burger, I don't have to think of them as a human being. I think the yeah. film does a great job of doing that. That's the thing. I feel like Nomadland, it's, it's, that's that human strength of it is really beautiful. And it really is like, again, not just in a year of the pandemic, but I think even after, you know, we're past the pandemic, you know, remembering, you know, the humanity of other people. I think, it, you know, we're locked into these systems right now, especially with the internet of just disregarding other people, you know? And I, I've seen, you know, I have, I have old friends 
who like their brain, like by being extremely online, like their brains have kind of rotted in such a way that they don't know how to re they don't know how to relate to any people anymore. It's like talking to someone on a message board. Like yeah. they don't see you as a person anymore. They see you as an argument to be fought rather than any kind of empathy or listening or understanding a person on a, on a more of a core level. And I think, you know, Nomadland is pretty remarkable in trying to encourage that. Well, I think that's the thing, right? Is that being extremely online is a lesson in how not to listen. Cause you see every tweet as an excuse to reply and yeah. not an excuse to sit and ponder. Cause you know, in conversation, I mean, I guess a lot of people do this, but you're not just sitting there waiting to like reply, 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 or like, what about this? What about that? You forgot this. And like, oh my God, you're racist or you're misogynist because of this and that and that and that oversight. Just like finding reasons to find, have a problem yeah. with something someone says rather than just like talking and having a conversation, which is not what Twitter is for. Right, exactly. Yeah, Twitter is is essentially just to pontificate and it, and also to make us miserable. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing, the, these, social, these social networks are sort of in a way like depriving us of a human, it, it's, it's a simulation of community, but not really, you yeah. know? It's, it's not really how humans are meant to interact in a way that is natural or, and, and in these, these social networks, you know, we know that they thrive on tapping into your negative emotions because those negative emotions keep you coming back. Yeah. And so to see something like Nomadland where it's not a world deprived, de devoid of negativity, but it has a more, it has a greater breadth of human emotion. Yeah. Um, and I think that makes it really rich. Yeah, I agree with that. It just, uh, I don't know, it makes you just really feel for these people. Yeah. Empathy, also, it's as simple as that. I also heard a bad argument that Chloe Zhao can't make this movie because her dad is a billionaire, <laughs> which, which is, is apparently not true. She said her dad is not a billionaire. Yeah, it does. You know, but here's the thing: even if he was, it wouldn't really matter. Like it's like I just this notion that we can only tell stories from which we personally come from. Mm -hmm. I think there are limits to that. I think, you know, I wouldn't, you know, I certainly wouldn't be comfortable telling the story of, you know, what is it like to grow up Asian? You know, I wouldn't be comfortable telling that story. But I also think that we also need to be like, you know, we can only tell stories about poverty from the perspective of the poor. You know, someone who has, who has been in that position in a way to me feels like an easy way to just never have to listen to that. Because if, if what we're saying is, is like the only stories we need to hear are from people who come from them, then what you're going to get is a story about a lot of rich white people. Yeah. Like, cause they're, they have the means of the apparatus to, to make, to get those stories made. And so like, I, I just feel like that's a, that's a faulty argument. I get where I think in some, in some cases it's true, but I just feel like it, it deprives the empathy that we are going to cinema to for. You know, this, this empathy machine is, as Roger Ebert called it, you know, and I think you need to have that kind of empathy to, to go places. And also we don't require that of, of fantasy stories. You know, it's not like, well, you never fought aliens. So how are you going to tell me about the space aliens? Are you saying that Steven Spielberg never met an alien as a young boy? I mean, it's possible. I haven't watched <laughs> that documentary yet. <laughs> but that's the thing, right? It's like Steven Spielberg has never met an alien, but he had his parents divorced at a young age and he channels that emotion through the story of E.T. and creates right. one of the best films of all time. It comes down to the filmmaker. I mean, I think it's a testament to Chloe Zhao. Like the way she makes films, she embedded herself in this community and she interviewed 
all of these actual nomads. And, you know, the night before shooting, she would send out her team to interview a bunch of people that would be in the scene, non-professional actors, actual nomads. She would watch those and cast the next day's scenes based on that. And then she would start filming just, you know, Frances McDormand having discussions with these people and watching and listening and understanding. Chloe Zhao didn't come in and be like, I think I have a good idea on what the nomads are like and let right. me just write a script and go from there. She took the time to understand where they're coming from, understand their stories and capture those stories. You know, um, I forget the character's name, but there's a man uh, who's pretty famous and he's telling a true story. Like, Is it's it something Bob Wells? That, Bob Wells, yeah. He's telling a true story about his son, like a thing that actually happened. Um, and it's within the context of the film that doesn't make it any less impactful. And it, it just really kind of gets to the root of, I think, the Nomadland movement. And again, this sense of community these people have despite the varying levels of trauma or grief um, that they're going through. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a terrific film and I, I, I hope people seek it out and I'm kind of curious. I mean, let's, let's, let's do a little bit of Oscar talk, shall we? You know, mm -hmm. it's, is, I guess the question is, is Nomadland the front runner? Because it, it and that, I don't know the answer to that because yeah. at times, you know, critically um, it seems to have, have, you know, it's being recognized by critics organizations on a pretty consistent level. Um, today, my own organization, the Southeastern Film Critics Association said it was the best film. And, and as someone who counted the votes, it was not even close. <laughs> like <laughs> Nomadland beat out the second one by a lot of votes. It's, it was pretty overwhelming that people like really went for it. Um, but I also feel like the, in such a weird year, it's hard to say. Like, I feel like under normal circumstances, you know, it's the Fox Searchlight backed film. You know, I think it will definitely get nominated for Best Picture. I don't, that would surprise me if it did because it won Toronto. It has critical approval. It it speaks to the zeitgeist. I, I feel like it, it, that is, but in terms of like, is it the front runner? That's a, that's a different question. It's so hard to say because the Golden Globes are this weekend and the Oscars are not for two full months. The end of April is when the Oscars are. So like, that's a long time away. Um, it seems as though it's the front runner. Like that's been the conversation ever since. It seems as though Trial of Chicago 7 may be surging. And you know, one part of my brain is like Parasite won Best Picture and Best Director that bodes really well for Chloe Zhao and Nomadland. Another part of my brain is Green Book won Best Picture. And that, you know, signals, and I like Trial of Chicago 7, but it's much more of a traditional, um, you know, appealing to those, more traditional academy voters it would seem um than something like nomadland which is a little more artsy a little more off the beaten path um you know takes takes a few more leaps um yeah i don't know i i think so but the, this whole oscar season this year is so far outside the realm of like anything that has happened before it's just kind of like throwing darts blind yeah. so and obviously it's not like nomads land value is changed whether it gets nominated or wins or doesn't win i mean that doesn't affect it yeah. it's just i'm hoping that you know if it does start winning awards it pushes more people to to check out the film that's yeah. my hope for it i mean if nothing else i think when people see eternals later this year they're gonna be like oh what else is this lady made yeah and Hopefully. then see and then watch the writer the writer is terrific yeah and like everything that we're hearing from Eternals is like they use the same techniques that they used on Nomadland and the writer. Like yeah, they, they found real Eternals. Hours. Yeah, and <laughs> yes. interviewed them. Interviewed the day these, they so. interviewed these beings and uh, discussed. Yeah, no, but it was like 
the comparisons I've heard is like to a Terrence Malick film, like very naturalistic. I'm worried about that. <laughs> not because, not, 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 no, not, not in the sense of like, oh, I don't like Terrence Malick as much as like, I've heard that spin before of like people who have a cursory understanding of a filmmaker or a genre yeah. and then being like this Marvel movie is like that. And it's like, yeah. no, we don't need to go all the way there. You know, yeah. you don't need to say the winter soldier is a seventies conspiracy thriller. You can say it's slightly inspired by that, but it's not in the same ballpark. I will say her casting was similar to her casting in previous films, which is that like Kumail Nanjiani said he was cast because she said, you are this character. She didn't cast like, oh, I think you'd be good to play this character, but she wanted everyone to bring, like she cast people who she felt embodied those characters. And that's a fantastic cast. I mean, that's incredible. It's a really exciting cast. Um, And, you know, I can't wait to see it, but yeah, if if you're, if you're excited for Eternals, check out Nomadland in the meantime, nothing is stopping you. Mm -hmm. For sure. All right, well, let's change, let's shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about I Care A Lot, which I also <laughs> saw at TIFF uh, last year and just was just such a nasty piece of work. <laughs> um, so it's currently on Netflix. For those who don't know, the idea is it, it follow Rosamund Pike plays um, this uh, woman who's, it's based in a real thing. There's a thing called guardianship where a, a, a talented scammer can essentially work the courts to take guardianship of an elderly person, argue that they are not competent to provide their own defense and essentially take over all, every, all their entire life. And so I care a lot kind of carries that out. Um, and then the twist is, is that she takes guardianship of the wrong old lady <laughs> and puts mm-hmm. her on a collision course with a, a, a an equally nasty per- individual played by Peter Dinklage. Um, it's just a really mean movie, but it's, I, I, I mean, if we were talking about, you know, the victims of capitalism, these are the perpetrators. These are people who are just, who have no honor. Comp- they, I mean, I think even in the intro, um, Marla Grayson's the character name. Mm-hmm. She says, you know, things like honor are for poor people. Like it's like yeah. the, you know, these noble concepts are for the poor. I'm in it for the money. And that's why I come out on top. I very nearly turned it off after like 10 or 15 minutes because it was so upsetting. Uh, I, it was just my, like... I called my parents after I was done. I was like, you, you have your, your, you know, your power of attorney and everything in order, right? No one's going to come take you, right? Yeah, because it's very slickly made and I think to a point. Um, so it's got this like flair of like Ocean's Eleven, but it's just like wheeling and dealing poor, sad old people. And I'm just like, this is terrible. <laughs> but then when it gets to the turn, you can start to kind of like exhale, I think, as you said in your review. Um, and you're like, okay, okay. Um, and Peter Dinklage plays uh, a, a vital character in the film uh, really well, I think. Um, if we want to, we can get into spoilers now for people who- Yeah, let's get into it. spoilers. But if you haven't seen I Care A Lot, stop listening and, and watch it on Netflix. It's, it's very entertaining, but also very nasty. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Peter, the, the, the wrong old lady is the mother of a Russian mob boss uh, who is presumed dead and who has created an entirely new life for himself and his mother so that no one can find him. Uh, and is making money uh, trafficking drugs through human, human mules uh, and goes toe to toe with Russell Pike's character who and like, I don't know if you had this issue, but like throughout the film, I was like, what is her deal? Like you got Chris Messina coming in in a wonderful suit offering a bunch of money. And she's like, nope. Like, how do you not think maybe it's a bad idea for me to keep conservatorship over, over this woman? 
Yeah, I mean, I felt that like she was just pure, you know, greed and ambition. And the mm -hmm. thing was is that she occupied a place where she, because she wanted power and control to even accept any kind of money would be giving up that power and control, saying that yeah. there's someone more powerful than I am and I don't want that. So, yeah. you know, the power that she exercises and, and Pike is, is fantastic. I mean, this She's is so good. If you liked her in Gone Girl, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I think the cast is great too. I mean, Messina is so much fun. Yeah. In this role that he has. Um, but the film is just relentless um, in its sort of machinations. Um, and I think in such a way that like, it's meant to kind of piss you off and bum you out. Like I yeah. found this film way more of a bummer than Nomadland <laughs> because it, it is the kind of film where like the cap, the greedy capitalists win. Like she does not get her comeuppance until kind of like a fluke. It's yeah. almost feels like almost tacked on. I mean, it is set up and it does pay off, but it's just, it comes out of nowhere to the point where the film could have just as easily ended with her on top. Well, so, and I want to be careful here, but like, um, I think the ending really, I was kind of like teetering on how I felt about the movie until the ending. And then I was like, oh, okay. Like now it thematically, thematically makes sense because the whole idea is that she and the Dinklage character hate each other. Um, are trying to kill each other actively. And they, they decide to team up because they realize they can make so much money, which feels very true. Yes. Uh, as you have seen throughout the politics of the last four years, um, people will sell their souls if it benefits them. Um, yeah, sure, I hate this person, but I will team up with them so that it, because it benefits me and it benefits them and whatever. It is what it is. I think the finale, like the end of it, you know, she's this lauded CEO. Everyone adores her. Um, you know, she's, you know, making all these headlines. She's made a ton of money and she's shot and killed by this man whose mother was uh, one of her wards and who died without him getting to see her. But I think the implication there is that this, you know, her death will be billed in the media as a tragedy and the man who shot and killed her will be billed as, you know, some kind of crazy Yeah, we don't, even, we don't even know who the true villains are because our moral, capitalism is so thoroughly warped our morality. Exactly, yeah. So I think that when it hit that point, I was like, oh, this is pretty smart. <laughs> I was like, yeah. okay, yeah. And then I, I was like, oh, I feel like shit. I feel terrible. <laughs> no, that's the thing. It does, it's not a feel-good movie in the slightest. Yeah. And if you go into it thinking, looking for some sort of moral redemption, you're not going to find it because that's the same as looking for morality and capitalism. It's a beast yeah. that demands to be fed, not, uh, you know, if you try to build a belief system around it, you're going to come up short. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but I think, you know, I think the film is, like you said, it's very slick. It's very well done. Um, I was just not prepared. Like when I saw, like, cause I, you know, I, when I saw it at TIFF, I hadn't even seen a trailer for it. Um, it hadn't been picked up yet. And so I watched it. And like you said, like that, those first, you know, 20 to 30 minutes really dig the knife in because mm -hmm. it's like, it's her doing what she always does and just rampaging through a person's life. And it's like, here's your protagonist. Yeah, and here's yeah. There's no and that's the thing. There's no hero character in 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 I Care a Lot. There's no detective. There's no there's no good person in this movie. Mm -hmm. Everyone's a bastard. Yeah. Um. But I don't know. I think to me, it's a good case study. You know, I hear one of the, one of the a criticism I hate is oh this character wasn't likable, and I just don't think that's a valid criticism because it doesn't matter if a character is likable. What you need to be is compelling. And this is a compelling character. It's compelling because of Pike's performance and because 
like you said, it's handled almost like an Oceans film, except they're, instead of robbing a casino, they're robbing an elderly person. <laughs> yes, yeah. Because it's played pretty slickly and funly, which I think is a really smart decision because it makes the film compelling and entertaining on like a visceral level. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, it, it, you want to keep moves. watching. Yeah. yeah, it really moves fast. Um, but man, yeah, it's it'll it'll turn the knife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a rough one. Yeah, I've seen some people being like, "Oh, I was sad when she died." And like, I don't think you're supposed to sympathize. You're not supposed with her. to be sad when she dies. You're supposed to be sad at the system that enables her. Yes. And if you don't like the system that enables her, that's not the movie's fault. <laughs> no. You Absolutely. don't have to like the message, but you know where is the lie? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, that's the thing. We don't have to look to, for art to be nice, but it's good when it's honest. Yes, <laughs> for sure. Now, after after you watch these two movies, go watch Fight Club. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just keep the train rolling. Just keep it. Just keep it going, man. And then and then rewatch Parasite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing but good recommendations on the Collider Nothing podcast. Good times. Parasite is, but this Parasite is similar to I Care a Lot in that it's like very fun and yeah. enjoyable and entertaining. Yeah. And at the end, you're just devastated. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, with that, do you want to move into Recently Watched? Let's do it. I'm going to keep the fun times rolling. All right. What are you seeing lately? <laughs> Alan versus Pharaoh. Uh. <laughs> uh, the uh, new HBO docuseries uh, chronicles the Woody Allen versus Mia Farrow, uh, you know, battle. So front and center is Dylan Farrow and uh, her allegations against Woody Allen of uh, sexual assault. Um, it's very upsetting. You know, th- there's these very intimate confessionals. Uh, she sat down for a number of interviews um, and it's really horrifying to hear. Um, there, you've also got footage from the time uh, because as, as young Dylan Farrow started making these, um, uh, started telling her mom what had happened to her, Mia Farrow got a video camera out and started recording her. So you're also seeing the young Dylan Farrow um, talking about what had happened. Um, and the film chronicles all of that, you know, uh, in, in chronological order. So with that, the uh, Sun Yi stuff with Woody Allen and then the investigations and the court battles um, and the custody battles and stuff like that. Um, I guess I shouldn't say film. It's a four hour docuseries. Uh, and it's very, very convincing. Like it's very damning and um, very upsetting. And it does a great job of shining a light on, you know, a, a frequent defense has been like, you know, these allegations were investigated twice and no, um, harm was found this docuseries really gets into like the raw materials of those investigations and why the fact that they were like cleared is uh pretty bogus um i will say the the thing that is a little disappointing in uh, of the docuseries is that it doesn't not like not to say it should give Woody Allen his side, but it doesn't necessarily address other ex- extemporaneous things that don't necessarily fall in line with what the exact story it's telling. So for example, Moses Farrow was, was an adopted son of Woody. He, he was Mia Farrow's adopted son. And then when Woody and Mia got together, Woody adopted Moses as his son. When the Sun Yi stuff happened, Moses Farrow wrote a letter to his father saying, I no longer consider you my father. Um, Moses Farrow has since uh, gone over to Woody Allen's side and has been the only child to come out um, and claim that Dylan is lying and also claim uh, 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 just a history of abuse by Mia Farrow. Um, or say, I should say the only uh, child aside from Sunni. And the docuseries doesn't really get into it aside from a couple little besides. And it feels like it does a disservice by ignoring that because that's 
a matter of public, like everyone knows that. And that would be a fascinating thing to hear because you're showing footage of young Moses Pharaoh and how Woody Allen was, you know, so close to him and all of this stuff. But then you're just kind of, it's a footnote when he kind of comes out on the other side. Um, again, not to say that like, I want Woody Allen's case to be bolstered, but I think if you're, if you're making a docuseries called Allen versus Pharaoh, you should try and be, you know, as all encompassing as possible. Um, well, and a good defense doesn't run from anything that might be difficult to yeah. combat. Yeah. So, uh, and, and, you know, what uh, I will say conversely, like uh, the way that it tells, cause obviously Woody Allen didn't uh, participate in the docu series, but um, a fascinating way around that is it uses his audiobook recordings to describe events that had happened. Um, and they themselves, like they are damning enough, honestly, of just Woody Allen's like creeper mentality um, and just kind of like how he viewed that relationship with Mia Farrow and how he was obsessed with Dylan um, and his relationship with Sun Yi, it's all in his own words and it's very um, gross, I should say. Um, so I thought that was an, an interesting addition there, but I don't know, it's a fascinating docuseries if you're interested in, in it, um, you know, I would suggest watching it. it. It is very upsetting to watch Dylan Farrow, um, you know, have to recount uh, these events, but uh, yeah, it's interesting. I, I just wish it would have been, I wish it would have acknowledged, have acknowledged some of these other things that don't fit quite nicely into the puzzle piece a little bit more. All right. Well, I'm going to try to end this podcast on a lighter note (laughs) (laughs) Uh, after discussing that documentary and those two movies. uh, I'm going to, I, I, this past weekend, I rewatched true lies. Nice. um, Which I hadn't seen since high school. And I just, I forgot that true lies is a lot. It's, I mean, so for those who who don't know the idea that Arnold Schwarzenegger plays a spy, already we're off the, the track here because the spy is supposed to be someone who blends in and yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger has never blended in in his entire life um like in the very first scene he's like you know he has this thick Austrian accent I mean it's Schwarzenegger you know that's yeah. the thing but the idea is he's a spy but he's hiding his life as a spy from his wife and daughter played by uh Jamie Lee Curtis and Eliza Dushku respectively um and the but then he thinks that his wife is having an affair. So he starts spying on her and then it culminates in the third act. Um, but it's just a lot. It's a lot of movie, man. It was like the most expensive film ever when it was made. And it's just, the thing about it is like any mo any, it's one of those things where first off, it would never get made today because a film with that price point that is just casually rated R, um, which is never, no studio would give it a green light, but like it was James Cameron coming off T2, reteaming with Schwarzenegger. And they're like, yeah, we're going to have a chase scene where one guy's on a motorcycle and Arnold Schwarzenegger's on a horse yeah. <laughs> and they have a chase scene. And at one point they, they get the horse has to get into an elevator. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's largely practical too. It honestly is a little reminiscent of uh, like the mission impossible. Yes. The latter ones. Yeah. There's like a, they like, like they put, you know, Schwarzenegger in a fighter jet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, you know, it, it's just every, even every little detail. It's like Charlton Heston plays their boss. Like he plays Schwarzenegger's boss, but he also like has an eye patch <laughs> <laughs> to make him more grizzled. Um, but, you know, I also have to say like the film, like because it's going so hard on everything that sometimes backfires, the film is horribly Islamophobic. Like the bad guys are, are you know, their group is called, I kid you not, Crimson Jihad. <laughs> it's it's team. I mean, if you're like, Team America, yeah, <laughs> is drawing from that. Yeah, it's just um, 
Oh, by the way, my wife just texted me because she's overhearing me talking. Charlton Heston's character was based on Nick Fury. And I'm like, yeah, I buy that. <laughs> <laughs> makes sense. That makes sense. Um, but it's just, but again, everything is just over the top and it makes it entertaining, but it's also just a lot of movie. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, it's like at one point, like Bill, like, you know, Schwarzenegger thinks that uh, his wife is cheating on him with a used car salesman plays by Bill Paxton. And then when he corners Bill Paxton, Bill Paxton not only has to like say that like he has a tiny penis, but then he also has to wet himself. Like it's that <laughs> kind of movie. Yeah. And so it's, it's just a lot, but it's entertaining with some very sort of like, ooh, that has not aged well uh, elements to it. But um, it is the kind of movie I kind of wish Cameron would make again like not as horribly offensive but like yeah. it's a fun bombastic blockbuster and it's like but would you like four more avatar movies yeah. not really <laughs> i didn't really want no, one avatar you. movie <laughs> so if i recall correctly i think uh, one of my favorite parts of it is that it it blended the domesticity with the spy world really well like it, it had a lot of fun with blending like his his family life with the spy world and making those two worlds come together in a way that was like engaging and compelling and believable. It is. It is. I will say that I was kind of like, if they ever remade true lies, I think it'd have been really interesting to make it more gender swapped mm -hmm. because it does fall very much into these sort of like genderized ideas of like the man is the action guy and the woman is the, you know, out of her element home, homemaker like i feel like know, that movie exists and i can't remember what it is but i feel like that there is definitely a movie it like feels that. like maybe there is something along those lines but i don't know it's not as cartoonishly fun as true lies right exactly um but it's on prime right now if you want to give it a watch i uh yeah <laughs> nice so yeah, well, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam Work, we find you on Twitter. At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.